I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. They have this airy, kind of graceful quality. They move in the wind and they catch the light. This is Gareth Richards, an editor here at the RHS, and he's telling me all about a garden favourite of his. They're like a rescue remedy for your garden. So if your garden's looking lumpy and everything's green and the same texture, you put some grasses in there and suddenly it's transformed. He absolutely loves grasses. Grasses are really long-lasting too. You can have colour and movement and texture in your garden 365 days a year, whether that's through evergreens or deciduous ones that change different colours in the winter. There is a grass for every moment. And he's not wrong. This time of year is brilliant for grasses. They're flowering and their flowers will be followed by seed heads and they'll look good right the way through winter until the frost and snow and rain beats them down in January when they're given a jolly good trim and we start all over again. That's why I've decided to dedicate this week's edition of Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter, to these graceful rescue remedies. Later, I'll be getting tips from RHS gardening advisors on how to look after grasses and I'll meet some wildlife that calls them home. But before all that, let's hear Gareth's ideas on how they can help enhance your green space. Grasses are really versatile, so you can use them for their foliage. There's things like the fescues, Festuca glauca, which is this amazing little plant. It's an almost unique colour that you can put in your garden. It has this wonderful, like, clumps of turquoise needles. That's evergreen. It looks good all year round. You can put it with your winter bedding. You can have it in gravel gardens. It works really well with bulbs and things. So that's, that's just one kind of example of how you can get this really good value plant that I really love is Carex. Now, okay, it's not strictly botanically speaking a grass, but you, you use it in a very similar way. It's a sedge, one like Carex oshimensis, which is quite common. You can find it in all the garden centres. There's an Evercolor series, so you have Everglow, Everlime, varieties like that. And they're these beautiful, they're really, really smart evergreens. And they grow well in shade as well. So if you've got a shady city garden, you can pick a gold leaf from one of those and you have like this little ray of sunshine that just sits in a dark corner and looks great all year round. They're easy to grow as well. They're not too demanding. Other grasses that you can use for foliage are things like Hakinacloa. Horrible name, really difficult to spell, easy to grow. It makes like a little fountain of small, almost like mini bamboo leaves and they look great in a pot kind of cascading over the edge. 
they give you a kind of a slightly oriental feel. They are from the Far East. And if you want a really, really dramatic one, there's something called Arundo Donax, which is a cane reed, and that comes from the Mediterranean. That can grow about 10 feet in a season if you really look after it. It kind of looks a bit like a bamboo. It's this giant grassy thing, and it has a really cool jungly feel. But then you can grow grasses for flower heads too. Things like Stipa gigantea, which is the gold notes, Penicetums, which are the foxtail grasses, or just Champsia, which are the hair grasses. And they, I love those because they catch the light, so they will just glisten in the sunlight. They will just add little highlights to your garden. They're really, really wonderful. So there's a classic combination which got used really, really widely in show gardens and garden designers about 10 years ago, but it is still brilliant. And that's Steeper Gigantia with Verbena bonariensis. So that's the golden oats with the tall purple Verbena. It's a real classic combo and it's classic for a reason. And that's because the colours work so beautifully together. Those sort of tawny golds from the golden oats and lots of other grasses have golden coloured flower heads as well. They work really well with these rich purples and reds that you get in late summer and autumn. They work well with dahlias as well, aconitums and monkshoods. If you grow those with calamagrostis, that will give you a real bit of oomph in your garden in the late season so yeah so so in terms of making the most think about combining them with plants that they're opposite so you have these you have these tall airy kind of goldeny flowering grasses and then you put them with chunky vibrant flowers like dahlias and, and verbena and then they make really really satisfying combinations it's really really interesting actually how the way that we use grasses has changed. They used to be considered almost weeds and then then they were very fashionable in their own right. And now we're seeing them be much more mixed in with other plants. So for example, you'll get Deschampsia, which is the hair grasses. So there's two species which are native, Flexuosa and Cespitosa. They are fabulous ornamental plants that really, their flower heads really, really catch the light. And you'll see those used really widely in show gardens at RHS shows. They're kind of very on trend, but they're quite a humble native plant. That's interesting, I think, because we don't often have that many native plants in our gardens, but there are quite a few native grasses that work really well. So for example, the Melinia, the purple moorgrass, that's native. And then there's a sedge, Pendula sedge, Carex pendula, which is a really good waterside plant if you've got a kind of a wild garden. It can be a bit invasive, but it is a beautiful thing with these long, long, arching, deep green leaves. And then it has these gorgeous flower heads that kind of shoot out over the water. And then they, the actual seed heads themselves kind of dangle vertically and they make this lovely spectacle. But uh, yeah, watch out because it does kind of grow pretty enthusiastically. So if you want to see some of these beautiful grasses, you can have a look in the garden magazine this month. I wrote an article about grasses for autumn interest. And part of the point of it was that there are kind of two different groups of grasses. There are those that come from warmer climates and they will grow during the summer. They will love the heat and drought. Things like um, miscanthus and panicums and penicetums. You don't want to plant those now. You don't want to divide them now. You want to just enjoy them for what they're doing and then, yeah, leave them be until the spring. Whereas grasses that come from colder places, like our native hair grass, the Deschampsia or the Millennias, purple moor grass and the fescues, those you can absolutely, you can divide them now. You can plant them now as well and enjoy them over the winter.
I think grasses are fantastic because they're so unique. They bring you such delicacy, such graceful movement, and they're just such a wonderful foil for other plants. They really are like a, a rescue remedy. If your garden just needs a little extra bit of pep, then grasses will provide it. Thanks, Gareth. If you're interested in any of the plants mentioned in today's programme, you can find names and a link to the RHS Plant Finder in our show notes. Now, grasses giving pep is something our next guest, Neil Lucas, knows all about. He's the owner of Knoll Gardens in Wimborne in the south of England, the place to go for all your ornamental grass needs. And I've just come in from uh, walking around the garden. A beautiful day, nice to be in a little bit of shade. Come into my study, which I'm usually not disturbed. Neil has been growing and selling grasses for over 25 years, so he knows a thing or two about the best ones for gardens. I've got a very old grainy picture of the bottom part of the garden just being sown with grass seed. They grew carrots there until after the war. That's how sandy it is. Then John May arrived. He was a plantsman, a bit of a reputation for rhododendrons and other plants. He planted a lot of the beautiful mature trees that we have today. And then he moved away to Scotland. The middle set of owners came along and run it unashamedly as a tourist attraction. It was very popular at that time. And then we took over, gosh, 27 odd years ago now and started putting the plants back in the garden, as it were. The garden is at its best, we always say, from June to Christmas rather than Christmas to June. So we're just coming into our peak season now. And, for example, the dry meadow, which is relatively new, has a carpet basically of poa and millennia and spirobolus, lovely names, these grasses. They act as a background for some of the echinaceas and the nepetas and the agapanthus that actually are flowering. So that's a particular style that we actually offer for people to look at as well. We go to the dragon garden which is one of the older parts of the garden I first planted that has huge miscanthus and rebecchias so all the brighter colours. Miscanthus are a bit late this year because of that terrible spring we had you remember how cold it was for so long that's delayed flowering a little bit so we're a bit behind. If I go down to the gravel garden which is next to the dragon that is absolute full flower at the moment with steeper gigantia those um, large golden yellow heads Lots of scabious, uh, the wild carrot. So there's whites and pinks and purple, very fluffy, effervescent and light. So there's always things going on. And of course, we see so many bees and butterflies because of all the perennials, as well as our style. We call ourselves a naturalistic garden, a naturalistic approach. I'm often asked about, you know, what my favourite grasses might be, for example, and I have a list of 400 or so for sale and a couple of hundred more on the nursery that we are experimenting with and working with. So I've been training myself as hard as I possibly can not to have favourites because, of course, it's right plant or, as we say here, right grass, right place. So, for example, if I've got dry shade, then the Hakonicloa like Aureola or Macra are so beautiful, long-lasting, easy care. I love plants that do most of the work. You know, we can take the compliments, but the plants do most of, of the work. And then I suppose if I was planning a sunny border, perhaps something like Miscanthus Cindy or Miscanthus Starlight or Penicetums, there are just so many beautiful plants. I try very hard to work out 
where I'm planting, what I'm trying to achieve, and then I start looking at the list. All the miscanthus, for example, tend to be really large grasses. They can be one and a half, two metres, or even three or four metres in the case of Giganteus. They're beautiful, quite ribbon-like leaves, and then they have very large flowers come midsummer, later high summer. Uh, and so Miscanthus cindy that I think I mentioned is our own selection. It has beautiful pink pendulous flowers when it starts. Starlight is a little bit shorter and that's a rather beige. I think if you're new to grasses, you know, a question I always used to get is, I don't want it to run everywhere. And I think the answer to that one very quickly is, well, most people don't. So just about all the plants we offer are good clump forming grasses they have good garden manners and i think what's so interesting is that if you have a dry shade garden we know how difficult it is you can find plants grasses that will cope beautifully with the dry shade need very little watering and very little care I love the idea of the naturalistic approach, which basically is letting plants do as much of the work as you possibly can. A garden is a design space, you know, we know that. But within that, I like to take the attitude to let plants take the lead, let them do the work. And I think grasses have shown me over the years just how capable they are doing that if we choose that right grass and right place. One of our favourite phrases there. Always key to remember, right plant, right place. It's a piece of advice I learnt the hard way. Often planting plants that loved shade in the sun and sun plants in the shade. But, you know, these things happen and there's always a spade, so you dig them up and plant them again to where they thrive. So even experienced gardeners need help sometimes. Which is why I think it's about time we headed to the advisory team to get the lowdown on ornamental grasses. Hi, I'm Nikki Barker and I'm a horticultural advisor at the RHS. So ornamental grasses come in a, a variety of forms, colours, sizes, heights. They're quite different to the grass you would have in your lawn, mainly because you're not mowing it, really. They're not grasses that you want to keep short and walk on. They're there for structural context within your borders and garden. They're actually quite low maintenance plants, which is why I think they've become quite popular. So as far as maintenance goes, you don't have to do too much to them. You don't want to overfeed them, particularly because you'll end up with a lot of foliage growth, but not any flowers. And you actually want those seed heads often because it gives them that form in the breeze when they're shaking about and particularly in the autumn and winter, it's part of their appeal. So they like a reasonable amount of water and most grasses like to be somewhere well drained in a sunny situation but the general rule of thumb for grasses is deciduous grasses you cut them back hard in the spring so leave the foliage and the seed heads on over winter for a winter interest but also because birds like the seeds come the spring cut them back hard down to ground level evergreen grasses you just tidy them up by combing out the dead foliage um, and removing the seed heads early in the spring autumn is a really good time of year for planting grasses from cool climates so those steepers festucas 
it's perfect for them. They get settled in over autumn when we've got plenty of moisture in the ground and plenty of rain coming. It gives them a chance to get established before next spring when they'll get growing quite quickly. Don't plant them too low. Plant them at the same level as they were in the container when you bought, when you bought them. They're really actually very good for container growing as well, some of them, especially the ones that don't get too large. And there is a wide range of sizes that you can choose for grasses. You need to keep them well watered when you first plant them just to get them established. But then once they're established, they don't really need too much attention at all. So it does make them ideal for that low maintenance garden. They don't really want feeding. And once they're established, you shouldn't really have to water them. I personally particularly like Imperata cylindrical rubra. It has these really nice sort of crimson red spring new foliage growth. And it does keep that through most of the summer as well so if you like something red there's a grass for you if you like golden colors there's grasses for you Millium effusum aureum is a lovely golden grass you can also use some for ground cover so things like festuca elijah blue it gives you a really good metallic blue shade it's also great for containers that one as well so i think there's lots and lots to choose from Thanks, Nikki. I've no idea what that sounds like to you because I'm listening to it from the inside, but I think that's what they sound like. We couldn't dedicate a show to grasses without celebrating some of the creatures that live amongst them. This is a conehead cricket, well, an impression by Brian Eversham. Hi, I'm Brian Eversham. I'm Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust for Beds, Cams and North Ants. He's crazy about all things cricket and grasshoppers. I've been interested in grasshoppers and bush crickets almost as long as I can remember. They're, they're about the only insects in Britain that make a lot of noise. So you can imagine as a small child listening to grasshoppers singing on the lawn and bush crickets chirping from the borders. It was really quite exciting. And... Over the last 30, 40 years, I've been quite involved in the study and the mapping of insects in Britain. And the two conehead bush crickets are actually two species that have transformed their distribution across the country enormously since the 1990s. And our, our guess is that this must be due to climate change. Basically, the, the long-winged conehead, which used to be quite a rare insect and can find just to the south coast of England, started moving north in the late 1980s. Some of you may remember we had long hot summers in 89, 90 and 91 and that seemed to trigger the species moving from the south coast up to the River Thames and beyond. It arrived on my local patch in Bedfordshire and Cambridgeshire in the late 1990s and it's now gone as far north as Yorkshire and seems still to be expanding. And its close relative, the short-winged conehead, was quite a rare insect of coastal grasslands and wet places and that seems to have broken out of that habitat and also spread so that that's moved from as far north as central England right up into Scotland and into Ireland in the last 30 years. I should probably start by saying what's a bush cricket and what's a grasshopper. So grasshoppers are insects with short thick antennae and they sing by rubbing their hind legs 
on their wings. So if you see a grasshopper singing, you'll notice its legs are moving all the time while it's making a noise. Bush crickets, by contrast, have very long, very thin antennae that you, they use almost like cat's whiskers for sensing and exploring the countryside around them. And when they sing, they simply vibrate their wings together so their legs aren't moving. And whereas grasshoppers, like the name suggests, feed mainly on grasses, the bush crickets are omnivores. They will eat soft plant tissue. A lot of them will sit around on flowers eating the pollen, but they're also carnivores in that they'll eat aphids and small caterpillars and sawfly larvae and other soft-bodied small animals. So if you've never met a conehead, the best place to go looking these days is probably in rough, dry grassland. I tend to find them, if I'm visiting nature reserves or the countryside, almost always by the edge of the car park. The very first place you look, you will hear long-winged coneheads singing these days. And they're plentiful on road verges, uh, railway lines, scruffy rough habitat, basically. Anywhere dry with plenty of tufty grasses and three-dimensional structures. And if you've let part of your lawn turn into a hay meadow then there's a fair chance that coneheads will colonise that. It's generally the male bush crickets and grasshoppers that do the singing, and they do it partly to attract the attention of females, but partly also to demonstrate their prowess in competition with other males. With the bush crickets, it sometimes gets rather sad in that two males singing for the same female will get so distracted by each other and start basically shouting at each other and kicking each other with their hind legs that the female almost always loses interest and just wanders off at that point. So it's not always a successful strategy, but this is the way evolution has developed the songs of uh, crickets and grasshoppers. Calling it a song is probably a little bit um, optimistic from most people's points of view. Um, some bush crickets have quite loud, sort of ringing, bell-like songs, but the two coneheads are fairly subtle. The short-winged conehead has a very soft song indeed, and it almost sounds exactly like the wind blowing through the reeds. And given that they quite often live among tall grasses and reeds, you can often confuse the sound of the bush cricket with the sound of the vegetation. With short wing, though, they have this habit of almost changing gear every few seconds. So the, the basic song is a loud hissing noise if you're very close. And I've kept these creatures in captivity on occasion. And if you're sitting right next to a cageful, then you do notice it. In the wild, a soft, gentle hissing noise. And then the gear change, something like... And just to clarify, the long-winged conehead has a slightly louder hissing noise and it doesn't change gears. So if you're not sure which conehead you're listening to, if it doesn't have that slow-down tick-tick-tick gear change, then it's probably the long-winged conehead that you've got. As with a lot of wildlife, if you want to have coneheads in your garden, then letting the garden be just a little bit wilder and a little bit less tidy is probably the way to go. If you've got to space for a pond, then ponds are brilliant for all sorts of wildlife. And the reeds and sedges and rushes around a pond are the sort of place that short-winged coneheads would really be at home. For long-winged conehead, as I hinted earlier, allowing part of your lawn, and I, I'd say maybe go for a third of your lawn wilder with flowers and cut the grass with one hay cut late in the season. And that long grass is the sort of place where lots of grasshopper species, but also the long-winged conehead, would be really at home. 
One of the reasons I'm really keen to encourage you to put, say, a third of your garden into a slightly wilder situation is that the Wildlife Trust nationally are working on a campaign we're calling 30 by 30, wanting to get 30% of Britain in good condition for wildlife by 2030. We think that could really turn around the decline in insects, flowers, birds and the rest of the wildlife. And if we can start close to home, if a third of your garden can be more wildlife friendly, then not only the coneheads, but all sorts of other wildlife will be coming to see you and making a home close to you. Brian Eversham on the Conehead Cricket. You know, by happy coincidence, I was out in my garden yesterday and looking at my roses, and there I found a couple of crickets. And they were bush crickets, which are quite common, um, but they tend to live in scrub and wild places. So I'm slightly hurt that they set up home in my garden, but very pleased to see them. We'll finish today with Alex Young, houseplant lover and horticulturist at RHS Garden Wisley's Glasshouses. He's following on from last week's feature on houseplant buying, and today it's all about choosing the right pot and watering. Pots, obviously, with plants are crucial, especially houseplants. In terms of like buying sort of pot covers, because really like the black or orange colour nursery pots aren't the nicest thing to look at. Some people like buying pot covers that have a drainage hole, but I tend to buy a pot cover that doesn't. So then when you water it, it will sit in a little bit of water, but then it can sort of suck that up and shouldn't cause any damage to the roots. Because sometimes if you water too much in a pot that doesn't have drainage holes, it can sit in far too much water and it will cause the soil to be waterlogged and that can lead to problems like root rot and that's when your plant will just die out. Repotting. The best way to actually tell whether your plant needs repotting is quite simply, if you turn it upside down, obviously keep your hand on top of the soil, turn it upside down and lift the pot up, you'll expose all of the root system. And if the roots are sort of wrapped around the inside of the pot, that's what we call root bound or pot bound. And then that's when you know really it's, it's time for a repot. Other ways to tell if you're watering your plant far too frequently um, they tend to dry out a lot quicker when they're ready for a repot. When you're sure that your plant does need a repot, I advise, and it's recommended, to only go up uh, no less than two inches around. So really, you could, if you can put two fingers down the side of the pot, that's usually about the right size, because you don't want to say put a tiny young plant into a huge pot it would just look a bit weird um, and at the same time you don't want to put a huge plant into a small pot because it's not going to be stable it's not going to be able to draw up enough water etc so yeah the main things are to look out for when repotting is check the roots to see if they're root bound pot bound for the next pot that you're potting into minimum two inches and yeah, if you want a decorative pot, then I'd opt for one that doesn't have drainage holes, but it's entirely, entirely up to you, I guess. With all houseplants, even I thought this at the start, you need to care for them, or I first thought that you need to care for them the same way throughout the year, but really you should care 
you should care for them differently season by season. And probably one of the best ways to actually know whether your plant does need a water is just to dig down into the soil. My favourite technique is I always use a chopstick. I've even got one on me now. There you go, my favourite tool. And what I do is I just prise it into the pot, pull it out. If it's still a bit damp, then I'll leave it for a few more days and then check it then. If it's bone dry, then obviously it's time to water. Because, yeah, what you could do is if you sort of get yourself into a routine of watering, say, every seven days, we might have a cool three days in that sort of gap and it might not have dried out enough, so then you'll find yourself overwatering and more problems further down the line. And there are actually a few different ways of watering. First way is obviously the normal way of pouring water in the top of the pot, waiting for it to drain out, let it sit in a bit of water just so you know it's, getting, it's got enough. The other way is to bottom water. So you sit your nursery pot, or your plant, into a tray pour water into the tray and your plant will actually draw it up through the holes so almost mimicking a plant out in the garden and the next way which is my favorite way which you can assure you won't miss any of the pot is submerging the whole pot into a bucket of water and you just wait for the bubbles to stop lift it out let it drain and that's it it's really handy because sometimes in pots you can get sort of dry pockets so then you might find sometimes when you water from the top, water might seep out straight away. So nine times out of ten, it's just sort of slipped down the side of a dry pocket. When you submerge the entire pot, it's inevitable that you've drenched the whole entire thing. And hopefully that dry pocket is now wet. <laughs> Alex will be back next week to talk us through houseplant propagation. Well, that's it for this week. I'm going out in my garden now to find a place to plant some grasses. I'm a bit light on grasses and all this talk of grasses has fired my enthusiasm. And we're always keen to hear from you too, so please do let us know what you like about the show or what you'd love to hear more of by leaving us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or you can email us at podcast at rhs.org.uk. I'll be back next week for an autumn advice special. But until then, have a good week gardening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on and I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step, and you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer, or visit cress.com. 
Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.